I'm Christy Hemingway, host of Ed Curation, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, have I got something cool for you to check out. Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, an inspiring and engaging podcast brought to you by the Education Podcast Network and hosted by EPN's founder, Christopher J. Nessie. Oh, so much cool stuff to learn. You're going to love this. Go check it out now. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Elizabeth B. Splane. That's right. She's back. The last time we talked was about her novel, Swan Song. And this time we're talking about her latest, Steel Butterflies. Two women, one a teenager, one a 97-year-old who has many skeletons in a, a proverbial closet left over from World War II. Both have secrets. The story deals with issues of the past and of the present. Awesome read. We'll leave you thinking. Oh, you're going to love this interview. You're going to love this book. Thanks for listening. And, 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 and by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? Say some nice words and uh, maybe give me a five-star review. What do you think about that? That would be so cool. You are awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Elizabeth B. Splain wrote the Dr. Julian Stryker series of blind thrillers, Blind Order and Blind Knowledge, as well as Devil's Grace, the winner of the Win Words Count writing competition. Additionally, she wrote Swan Song, an historical fiction novel which was chosen by independentbookreview.com as a top 35 impressive indie press book of 2021. Prior to writing, Elizabeth earned an A.B. in psychology from Duke University and an M.H.A. from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She spent 11 years working in healthcare before switching careers to become a professional opera singer and voice teacher. When not writing, Elizabeth teaches classical voice in Rhode Island, where she lives with her family. Today, our focus is on her latest novel, Steel Butterflies. Here's a little bit about Steel Butterflies, and it's based on true events. Ebony Dobbs has problems, unruly hair, not fitting in with the popular kids, figuring out how to pay for college, and a secret she's buried so deeply, even though she doesn't know the truth. A kick-butt best friend, Connor Leibovitz, uses his computer genius to dig into a new secret. Ebony reluctantly accompanies her mother on a home health visit, meeting Madame Celeste DeWitt, a 97-year-old with a closet full of skeletons from World War II. As Ebony learns the truth about Madame's wartime exploits, she comes to terms with her own past, realizing she and Madame share more than they differ. When Connor uncovers information that implicates uh, Madame's estate manager in a plot to steal the old woman's fortune, the teenagers launch a campaign to protect her, even as Madame's past barrels into the present, threatening to destroy everything in its path. Inspired by real people and places, Steel Butterflies will have you marveling at the beautiful simplicity of true friendship, as well as the courage of women who come face-to-face with determining their future. Beth, the last time we talked was on episode 461, back in the spring of 2022, when we discussed your book, Swan Song. Welcome back, and say hi to everyone. Thank you for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening. Well, glad to have you back. And before we talk about your latest novel, Steel Butterflies, could you talk a little bit about you and singing? Sure. I, <laughs> I've sung my whole life. Um, I knew I wanted to be a singer when I was five years old, and I started studying voice at 12 at the Wilmington Music School in Wilmington, Delaware. And then uh, I studied through college, and then I took 10 years off when I was working in healthcare, and I didn't sing a note. And I was very sad. So when I was 31, I recorded a CD. We lived outside of Boston. I didn't know what to do to get back into singing. So I recorded a CD, and then I ended up um, studying voice at the New England Conservatory's Extension Program. Uh, Through there, I started auditioning. Two days before we moved from Boston to Hershey, Pennsylvania, I auditioned for Boston Lyric Opera. They were doing Carmen. It was my first real audition, and this has never happened before since. Well, that was my first audition, but they asked me after my audition 
if I was going to be around for the performance, which was so bizarre because no one had, no one's ever asked that. So of course I told the truth and I said, no. And they said, would you travel back, you know, to do this if we hired you? And um, I, I had two young kids. I couldn't do it. So we moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania. No one would hear me sing because I didn't have a resume. And so I put on a, um, a recital. I invited local and regional opera companies. And I don't know why, but they came. And uh, that got me singing with local opera companies. And I started getting major roles in very small companies. Then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I sang with Grand Rapids Opera which was a nice regional company. And then we moved outside of Detroit and my last audition was with Detroit Opera. So I sang for 15 years and worked up from nothing. I didn't have a music degree. I didn't major in music, um, but I did study music. And after being on stage for 15 years, I decided I didn't want to be on stage anymore. Um, my last my last contracted performance was with a small kids opera company where I played um I played the witch in Hansel and Gretel, which was on my bucket list of roles to play because it's such a great role. And that was my last official performance. Now I perform when I want to perform. And uh, I have a presentation that I do where I sing a song related to my books. And then I talk about the book and then I'll launch into another song. So I'm slowly bringing the two worlds together, not only in writing, but also in promoting my writing. So it's kind of cool actually. But I enjoyed it very much when I was there. But then one day, I just didn't want to be there anymore. And I was teaching from the time we lived in Hershey. Uh, it literally fell in my lap. I had no business teaching. I was a terrible pianist. And I didn't know what I was doing. But people kept coming. Um, so I ended up teaching. And here I am 20 years later. And I work at the Rhode Island Philharmonic. Of course, I've become a much, much better teacher. <laughs> And ironically, if I were performing now, I'm so much a better singer from having taught for so many years. So um, that's the story of singing. Loved it. Glad I'm not doing it anymore. When my students say, you want to do something with me? I say, oh, I love you so much. No, no, it's your time. I'm done. <laughs> nice. So it's all good. <laughs> nice. I, well, I appreciate you sharing that because it also, you make sure that music appears in your novels, don't you? Mm -hmm. yeah. I do. In every novel, there's something musical. Really, it's because to me, music isn't something you listen to or something you play or something you sing. It's it comes out of who you are. You know, we sing when we're happy or we're happy because we sing. Right. It releases endorphins like music is integral to life. And even if you're, you don't consider yourself musical, there's almost no one on the planet who doesn't at least listen to music a little bit. And what happens to your body when you listen to music? You know, things it changes. Cool. So in a good way, or if you're sad or whatever. So to me, music is, it's just critical. And so therefore it makes its way into all of my books. That is awesome. I love that. I appreciate you explaining uh, about your uh, past and the current, uh, you know, where, the, that role that music plays. So good stuff. Um, so when you guys start reading her books, you're going to get a look, you'll see it. It's right. It, it's going to, it's going to have <laughs> a presence. Glaringly obvious. Yeah. yeah yes. Uh, so Beth, at the conclusion of your book, Steel Butterflies, you have a last section called Letter to the Reader. In this section, you note, choice is a theme in all of my books. It's a simple word chock full of consequences. Could you talk about what you mean? I, you know, we live in a time where it seems like a lot of people do not want to take responsibility for choices that they have made. It's always someone else's fault. Um, as kids grow up and they blame their parents for events that happened in their lives, there's some truth to that. But at some point, we become the stewards of our own life and we have to make choices. And those choices need to be lived with the consequences that fall from them. So, this can be good and bad. Like some people say, oh, I had no choice but to help that homeless man because otherwise he would have frozen. Well, that was a choice you made. It was it was a very kind choice. It was a very empathetic choice. So it fascinates me, the psychology behind how some people really believe there's no choice when there is, again, both good and bad. A friend of mine just told me the other day, in her opinion, um, there aren't good and bad choices. There are just choices and the repercussions that fall from them. And so some people believe that the choices we make 
are partially determined by what we're supposed to learn in this lifetime. And so if you make the choice and you're not willing to learn from the consequences, then are you really fulfilling your goal? So um, choices can seem very black and white, but uh, in wartime, any time of trauma or stress, I think it kind of becomes a spectrum of decision-making. For example, in Swan Song, you know, um, or in any of my books, actually, when is murder uh, the choice of murder? When is that okay? Or is it never okay? So uh, without giving, giving anything away, if your life is at stake and you end up murdering someone in the process, what was that okay? And, and I don't think there's one right answer. I think it depends on your own morality, um, your own background, um, life experience. And it's, it's not necessarily right or wrong that I look at. It's rather the reality of the choices we have to make, sometimes under stressful situations, and how we live with those consequences, what we do with that. So uh, Crime and Punishment is a great, that's one of my favorite books. Um, because Dostoevsky describes a choice that's made and how it drives him insane, the guilt. So if he were a different person, would the result have been the same? And of course, the answer is probably no. <laughs> so I just find it fascinating. It's fascinating to me. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's powerful. I mean, it, what you're talking about and, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, good and bad and we'll get into the, another question about this in a little bit but it's uh you know it's uh something that uh you know the choices that we make and is can it ever be you know that we you know did we see it as a choice were we forced to do you know mm-hmm. there's just different levels that, uh, that that play at it and uh i just thought this was very powerful as i was reading that and so thank you know appreciate you talking about it because it's it plays sure. out near uh with your characters uh you know there was a real Celeste. Could you talk about yeah. having your friend talk about the past? I mean, why is this important when understanding the past? And what's it do to the to those, you know, the the idea of sharing those stories and thoughts? I mean, what did, what did that do for mm-hmm. you? Well, <clears throat> let me back up and say I met the real Celeste 30-something uh, years ago. Um, her husband was a patient of my father-in-law, who was a surgeon. And... Um, after her husband passed, uh, through no fault of my father-in-law, I might add, um, she became kind of part of the family. And she was at Easter's and Thanksgiving's, and she was just part of the family all the time. Um, she would, as she aged, she would talk about, you know, if she had a glass of wine, she would let something slip about the war. Like when she she met Rommel when she was in Paris and she would just say stuff like that and everything would stop and we'd say, what? You met what? When? What? You know, or talking about when her family went underground after the Nazis moved into their home again, everything would stop. So, you know, we often don't realize we are literally living in the middle of history, but when you're in the middle of it, it's just life. It's not, it's not history. Right. Right. You realize this is probably important, but you don't really appreciate it until after it's done because choices have not yet been made or they have been. But the repercussions, the bricks have not fallen yet. So it's so easy for us to sit here and look back on anyone's experience and say, well, I would have done this and I would have done that. But you don't know. You, you may think you know <laughs> what you're going to do in a situation, but until you're in the situation, you, in my opinion, you don't really know. So every time the real Celeste would talk about that, it brought, it was history. She was living history, sitting in the living room, talking about the war. It was alive to her. In fact, she initially gave me six or seven years ago, she gave me permission to write her story. And we lived in Michigan at the time. And so I was doing phone, t- phone interviews with her. And she was 92 at the time. And her accent was like this. It was still very, very thick. It was very difficult to understand her over the phone. Wow. And also because she was 92. Yes. So after two and a half interviews, and I had oodles of notes, she said, I can't do this anymore. And I said, why? And she said, 
because there is someone who lives near me who, if he found out who I was from the war, would kill me. She was 92. The war was still alive to this woman. And for anyone who's been through any traumatic event, if you relive it, I don't know, in my case, I end up shivering. Don't even, you know, it comes completely unbidden. And it happened yesterday. And so to her, it was happening yesterday. And that's all in the book. So to, to sit and chat with her, you were there. She put you there. And you couldn't, well, I couldn't help but think, what would I have done? What would I have done if I saw someone being beaten in the streets? What would I do if I had extra food, but it was a crime to give it to someone who shouldn't have it? What would I do? And it's kind of a torture. I mean, it's really, you. It, it's much easier to just go on with your life and say, you know, la, 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 whatever. That's someone else's problem. That isn't happening to me. But I've always been the kind of person, even on stage, I would constantly think, well, if this goes wrong, then I'll handle it this way. <laughs> and sometimes that was to my benefit because things always go wrong on stage. So it's kind of the same thing. I think every time I come across a situation like that, that she would talk about, I would think, hmm, what would I do? So talking with her brought history to life. Um, as she got older, she talked about it more. I think it was therapeutic for her. I think she was letting go of some baggage she had carried for a very, very long time. And so I like to think that it benefited her. She never said that. And there was a very fine line where we didn't push too much. It was her choice, of course, to discuss it or not. So she was a joy to know, a relic of an amazing past who didn't think she had made great choices and didn't think she had done that much in her life, even though she had worked for the resistance while Nazis were living in her home. She ended up with three PhDs, spoke five languages. I mean, this woman was incredible. And as she gave me permission to publish this book, finally, I I read her part of the book when I went to visit her and she was bedridden and she never opened her eyes the entire two hours I was there, but I read her a portion of it. And she lay in bed. I was reading her a part where um, Celeste and Ebony, the two main characters are in the butterfly house. And as I was reading, her hands were fluttering up and down like butterflies. And she kept saying, oh, it's so beautiful, Beth. It's so beautiful. And so when I was done, I said, do I have your permission to put this out in the world? And she said, you do. And my shoulders dropped like three inches. My mother-in-law was there. And uh, I asked her if I could use her name. And she said she'd think about it. And um, then I asked her if she wanted to say anything in the beginning of the book anonymously. And she said, yes, love is eternal. And so love is eternal is in the front of the book. She never got over the loss of her husband who adored her. And he still hung out in the house, if you know what I'm saying. He still was around in the house. I saw him once. That's a whole nother story. We'll do another time. But uh, he was definitely there. So that's cool. As, thanks so much for sharing. And it's, it's one of those things that I can only imagine, uh, you know, if you've, if, uh, you're sharing, someone's sharing with you about their experiences and, you know, there, there's going to be things that they talk about, just like what you're, I mean, just everything that you're mentioning, um, because at some point they have to decide whether they're going to continue talking with you or not. Right. And, and, you know, also the possibility that of whether you're really listening to them or not and mm. uh, has to come into play as well. And I, I think uh, too often people, uh, you know, they go to visit somebody and they, they talk with them and are in, not so sure they're talking with them <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know, inter- interchanging or listening to what they're talking about. So, um, so thank you so much for sharing about Celeste. Yeah. It's, it's cool that you had that uh, uh, um, connection that you were able to make. Uh, you know, it, so let's talk about a couple of characters that you've mentioned now. Um, so in your book, who is Ebony and who is Celeste? Ebony is a 15-year-old biracial girl. She's, her father is white and her mother is African-American. And she lives in a very white town in Rhode Island, um, a town that puts up signs that says, hate has no home here. And of course, hate has a home everywhere, unfortunately. And Ebony is 
the target of some of that hate. And she's trying to navigate her way through being a biracial girl in a very white town um, and just being a teenager. She's incredibly bright. She meets Celeste DeWitt, the 97-year-old old woman, because her mother, who I love so much, Ebony's mother, Jean, is a home health nurse. And so Jean picks up Ebony from school and says, I have to go see a client that was just added to my schedule. Ebony hates visiting old people. They smell, it's, it's gross. They always have like ulcers and things like that. And so she goes with her mother and um, Madame DeWitt takes, is rude, very rude to Ebony the first time she meets her. But Ebony sees sees pictures in the hallway of a younger Madame DeWitt. And in one of the pictures, Madame DeWitt is wearing something on her lapel that looks like a pin. And she's looking past the camera. And it's the only close-up. It's the only headshot in the entire group of photographs. And she becomes obsessed with this picture. And she wants to know more from this woman. So despite the fact they don't care for each other very much in the beginning, she ends up coming back to visit Madame DeWitt who sees something in Ebony, a lot of herself. She says to Ebony at one point, um, you know, you're incredibly bright, but I see a sadness in your eyes. You've suffered loss. And um, I think that that unspoken connection is what joins them. And that's what gets them kind of past their initial dislike of each other. Sometimes, I don't know if this has happened to you, but Sometimes I meet someone and I'm not sure about them, but I do feel drawn to to keep talking to them, almost like somebody knows more than I'm allowed to know at the time. And so that's what happens with those two characters. But Ebony is just, she's a powerhouse and she's trying to figure out who she is and what she stands for. And um, working through, working with Madame DeWitt and chatting with her, she finally comes to understand what her resistance is. Madam had the resistance. What does Ebony have? So she figures it out. And through their meetings, significant secrets are revealed uh, that Ebony didn't even know about herself. And Madam is very careful about what she divulges. But the kids, as you mentioned in the beginning, do a little sleuthing, a la Nancy Drew, sort of, and, uh, and figure out some important stuff that may threaten madam that is awesome appreciate you sharing and this is it's uh you know leading into i'm on purpose not going to get into too much detail because if you do it gives away things that are going to happen but uh appreciate you talking about this you know it's something um that i gotta make sure i bring out is that world war ii is part of the setting for your story and and could you talk about what you're doing, you know, either research or background information that you uncovered or or used to help connect your story to the time frame Yeah, you know, because I had just come off the heels of writing Swan Song, where I read a bajillion books for that one, um, I felt I had a good grasp of a a knowledgeable, a useful grasp, I shouldn't say, because you can never know enough about something you're interested in. But I had a good grasp of of Paris in World War II. There's a book by Anne Saba called Les Parisiennes, and it's specifically about women uh, before, during, and after World War II. And so that was hugely helpful. That was a, that had a major impact on how I wrote the story. It helped me get inside uh, the real Celeste's head even more. And um, because remember, when I wrote this book, she had not given me permission to write it. The book was originally supposed to be about the real Celeste, but it ended up being about Ebony because I was almost writing defensively. <laughs> I wanted to write about Celeste, but I knew I wasn't supposed to. So (laughs) I, when I wrote this, I didn't even think this could be published until she passed away, if ever. Um, So it really, it was a year plus of my life. I was like, wow, am I ever going to get this back? You know, or is this ever going to go anywhere? But uh, that was one of the books, Les Parisiennes by Anne Saba is one of the books I read to really get inside the head of a woman in Paris during World War II. That was probably the most influential book. But of course, I had read um, books about Hitler and about, you know, concentration camps and about the war in general for the previous book, Swan Song, that all came into play here. Gotcha. Cool. I, I kind of figured that that, that 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 really helped because you you got such detail uh, for that story as well. Uh, yeah. Um, 
So, you know, something that I like about the way you write is that you use descriptions that make the reader get the picture that you're creating. I mean, for example, early in your book, Ebony says the following. Creepy. Ebony finished rubbing her eyes and gawking at their surroundings. Straight ahead, heavy tree branches hung low, threatening to scratch the top of the car as it passed. Bushes leaned into their path to actively impede progress. Ebony shook her head. As in, don't go into the haunted mansion kind of creepy? Like... The call is coming from inside the house kind of creepy. Nice. I mean, could you could you talk about helping to get the reader to be where you want them to be? Because I got to tell you, you know, if you ever walk down or driven down a path and there's maybe a little storm or wind coming and maybe it's getting a little dark or it is dark already and uh, the trees are swaying and you're you know, kind of bumping against your car. So, you, know, you, you know, you can always... If you watch one too many movies, I like the reference here, by the way, about the call coming from inside the house or the haunted mansion. You know, it's like, uh, I get the feel here, right? It's like, uh, cool. I mean, it, talk a little bit about that. I mean, could, could you talk about, uh, you know, helping them get the reader to where you want them to be? Yeah. Their thoughts. Well, I, I you know, I only know the way I write. And um, I, well, first of all, the real Celeste, um, did live in a crumbling pink mansion, not blue mansion. And it, it is on the Atlantic in a different town than what's in the book. But so when, when I would pull into her driveway, <laughs> that description was very true. Nice, nice. Um, um, but aside from that, I love similes and metaphors and I love, um, I love writing as a teenager because I think sometimes I think as a teenager, which probably is not so good, but um, this wasn't supposed to be a YA book. This is just what I think a teenager would say. And I, obviously I had several teenagers read it to see if some of this stuff was spot on. Excellent. Um, but you know, it means something and you know, there's always a little drama with teen, not always, there's often a little drama with teenagers. So you can just see Ebony saying creepy, like don't go in the house kind of creepy. Like the <laughs> call is coming from inside that. Yeah. It's creepy mom. You know, it's just that whole attitude thing. I just love that. And nice. because I think I come from, you know, the stage to me, every this, all of my settings are on stage or Excellent. on a movie set in my head. So the car was very, you know, the crappy old blue Toyota or whatever is super clear. And I, so I see it, I see it when I write it and that's how I write it. I, but I do love similes and metaphors and um, connect, you know, just making sure that, uh, that um, if I can't see it, then the reader isn't going to be able to see it. And if I, there's, a, there are oftentimes when I'm describing something and I think, no, I've already said that because it's really easy, especially this is my fifth book. It's easy to get into a groove you know, and go back to something you said before. And I was like, nope, can't do it, gotcha. you know. Um, but I have to be able to see it. And my gut knows when it's a decent description and when it's not. And then, you know, editors come back and say too much description, too little description. I tend to just want to get everything on the page. And then I go back in my rewrite and I add a lot more description. But that scene... <laughs> when they when they first pull up to the house just poured out of me because because I could see it you know nice. I could see it even down to the algae on the cherub <laughs> in the fountain Excellent. so it's it's everything no one wants to go into the house and it's certainly a house that a teenager would not want to go into especially one who knows she's going to see an old person who smells in gotcha. her mind gotcha but, gotcha yeah well, that uh, well, it definitely created that picture. I mean, I'm going to read another one here where you can tell. I mean, it's just something that you, you do so well. And I love it. it later Thank in you. Steel Butterflies, you say this, uh, or your characters <laughs> say this. Uh, what happened next? Ebony asked. Madame tapped a finger on her mouth as if she were trying to remember or perhaps forget. The following day, my friend and I sat on a park bench and shared a warm cup of tea while we waited for Heinrich. He never appeared. Okay, so this is cool because you're creating <laughs> anticipation for something to happen, which is I love it when a writer makes you want to keep reading because you want to know, okay, so what happened next? <laughs> yeah, and, why did Heinrich not appear? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and yeah. just as a note, if you've ever talked with somebody who who is older and, they, and they, they're telling you something and then suddenly they pause mm -hmm. and you wonder, did they just on purpose leave something out? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, it, yep. Oh my gosh, I felt this right here. And, um, you know, could you just talk about writing to keep the reader interested in reading more? I mean, this, this is cool. 
Yeah, it's easy. In my opinion, it's easy and it's hard because I know what I like to read as a reader. Um, Early on in my writing, every chapter had to end with, if not a cliffhanger, something to want, hopefully get the reader to keep reading. Um, As my stories got more complex, I I think um, I, I didn't focus on that as much because the drama of the war (laughs) <laughs> was often enough to get people to keep reading in, in both right. books. But in that case, you know, Madam is telling her, um, and I don't want to give it away, but Madam is describing basically her first um, escapade as a spy. And she was, I think, what 17 or 18 in the book when this happened. And when you understand how old she was and what she had to do to survive, she it's appalling. And so when you read that, you do wonder what happened to Heinrich and she you very quickly learn what happened to Heinrich. But. um, Again, that was real. So I, I I basically was just telling a story that in and of itself was so dramatic that I just had to make sure the verbiage worked. You know what I'm saying? There are times when you as a writer have to create the drama. And in this case, the drama was there. I just had to sculpt it. I had to describe it. And so, um, you know, whenever I am working with students and and they're singing a song, sometimes I'll say to them, sing it as if you're singing to kids. Because if you, you know, tell stories to kids, you don't say, once upon a time, there were three little bears, right? You go, once upon a time, there were three little bears, and they lived in the woods. And so that same kind of drama has to come into writing, right? And so she taps her lips, and then she said, he, you know, he never appeared. And then there's the dramatic pause, because Madam is, of course, even though she is telling her own stories, she is very aware. She has been an actor her whole life. That's what spies are, right? They're the ultimate actors. She knows how to create a scene. She knows. Now, I'm not suggesting that she did that on purpose. Maybe she did. I don't know. I know that the real Celeste would drop a bomb, verbal, you know, like Met Rommel. And nice. I, I do believe that she knew exactly what she was doing because everything would stop and we would all pay attention to her. <laughs> and it's not that she was attention hungry because she wasn't, but she also didn't mind it. Right. So I think there's a little of all of that going on. Well, I got to tell you, you do a good job of wanting us to, to uh, thank you to know more and uh, okay, let's, let's find what's going to happen now. So cool. So thank you. That's awesome. I, all right. Without revealing any major plot points, could you talk a little bit about the role that secrets play in your story? Oh yeah. So, you know, secrets can often be cancerous, right? If we, cause secrets, are the nugget and then the nugget gets encapsulated in time and guilt and pressure to reveal or not reveal. And so at some point, many people feel the need to reveal long held secrets. I mean, everybody has some secret, right? But if this secret is so big, like you killed someone and you're not sure how you feel about it, putting it out there so you're giving the other people the opportunity to judge is very, very scary. But holding it in damages you, even if you stuff it down so deeply so that you don't know, even remember that you did it. It's still going to come out one way or another. It just will. So secrets to me are very, in general, damaging. But if you reveal them too early, that also can be damaging maybe less to you and more to the people around you. So where is that fine line and how do you discover it? And what do you do with it? That gets to choice and the repercussions coming from choice, right? So these two women, young woman and old woman, each have secrets. Ebony doesn't know her secret because she's buried it so deeply. Madam knows her secrets, but she has chosen to not reveal them. And 
I want the reader to decide why she chooses not to reveal them. Um, again, and this is discussed in the book, anyone who's been through trauma doesn't necessarily want to talk about it. I mean, many, many, as you know, many people from World War II literally wouldn't talk about the war because who knows, the, the memories were too painful. But I've had World War II survivors approach me about swan song and steel butterflies. One specifically about swan song, one said, it's too early to be writing books like this. It's too early. It's almost, it's what, 80 years ago or whatever now. Right. It is so and, and we listened to that too early. But of course, to him, it was yesterday. Right. His friend read the book and said, unbelievable. This is spot on. It was amazing. Da, da, da. So it's all about each person's perspective. But ultimately, it's up to you if you want to reveal a secret or not. But you need to live with the choice of choosing to reveal or not choosing to reveal. It's, yeah, it's something else, and it's something that uh, I think anyone who's who's reading is going to, you know, if they've got secrets, it's going to kind of hit home. I guess that's where mm. we'll go with that. So, mm. um, all right. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure that I get you to talk about, I mentioned in the very beginning, is let's talk about the concepts of good and bad people. What are mm. your thoughts about this? I mean, what do you what do you hope the reader thinks about when she finishes your story in terms of good and bad? Um, Ebony kind of says to her best friend, Connor, who I love at one point, she's like, or Connor, one of them says, God, adults are so screwed up. I never want to grow up. They're just so screwed up. Adulting <laughs> is hard, you know? Yes. Um, because of course, as you get older, the choices have larger consequences. And, um, so I, I've been thinking about this recently, actually. You know, you read about someone, I read The Life and Death of Adolf Hitler, which I could only read 30 to 50 pages at a time because it was just so, it makes you want to vomit. But, um, you know, are evil people born? And this is something that it, my undergrad degree isn't psychology. I mean, this has fascinated me forever. You know, good good people do bad things. What does good people mean, right? What does right. that even mean? Because... Do your actions define who you are? Do your thoughts define who you are? So, and who's the judge? <laughs> you know, yep. ultimately at the end of the day, this is what I tell my kids. If you can't look in the mirror at the end of the day and said, I did good today, I did the best I could do. And if you're not honest with yourself to be able to say, well, I could have done that better. You know, I need to work harder there. We don't want to bash ourselves. But we need to keep striving for better all the time. So in the book, the um, estate manager in the beginning seems like a terrible person. And over the course of the book, again, without giving too much away, Ebony and Connor think they've nailed him. They, they find out all this stuff about him. But then they learn why he did what he did. And all of a sudden, the truth is gray. It's not clear anymore. Right and wrong has blurred, just like in the war. Right and wrong blurs. So that's one example. Another example is a friend of mine, a great writer, um, whose book is going to be coming out soon, called For the Love of Jeremy. She and I uh, were in a competition together, the When Words Count competition, and we took a walk. And she said she came over from Germany when she was two. And I said, I didn't know you were born in Germany. She said, yeah, my dad wanted us to get out of there. And then and I said, oh, that must have been because that was during the war, right? And she said, yeah, he was a soldier. And I stopped and I said, your father was a Nazi? And as soon as I said it, I was like, hi, Judgy McJudgerson. What? No, back up the train. Right. And then she said, Yes, but he was a good Nazi or something like that. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, he saved as many people as he could. I have since learned that he was stationed at the Russian border and the Russians would come and shoot the German Nazis because even then there was the Russian-German you know, um, yeah. standoff. They would shoot them. So the Russian Nazis, or excuse me, the, the Nazis would hide in this woman's house. She protected them. And the Russian soldiers would rape her and beat her 
to try to get her to tell the truth. And she never did. She protected those soldiers. Okay. First of all, like I, it's speechless when I, when I heard that second of all, my friend's father did what he could do to save him and his family. If I were presented with the choice of joining the Nazi party or being killed, what would I do? Right. Right? Right. It's a terrible, awful choice. As soon as the war was over, he took his family and he moved to the United States because he knew that it would never be the same again. And he wanted to get as far away as he could. Is he a good person or a bad person? I don't think, well, I know he's a good person because my friend is a good person because I've read her book. But the point is, I don't think it's as clear as people want to make it out to be. I really don't. I think it's doing the best you can at the time and living with the consequences of choices you make. That is so powerful because it is, it is something that, uh, you know, I think people have argued over, people mm-hmm. have written dissertations on, people have yep. written theses on, and, you know, it's just because uh, it's, because we're all going to have our opinions about it based upon our experiences, I think. And, uh, and that is going to play a huge role. And, you know, for, for thing events like world war two and such, there's things that took place that for some, it would require a lot of forgiveness to be able to say anything about good and bad. <laughs> that's not just bad as bad. Yeah. And if I lived it, I may not feel this way. I right. might say, Nope. I know what's bad. I lived it. I was there. I lived through hell. Right. I saw the devil. I know what they look like and they, they wear swastikas. Like I would imagine I would be very vehement, but even now like talking, I'm it's like, I was there. Of course I wasn't there, right. but I could see how that would be a very black and white issue or so. So how does someone find that level of forgiveness? And that's again, a fascinating compassion, empathy, the light, I call it the light with a capital L. Where does that come from? Like, where where do you find that within yourself, you know, to offer that gift to someone that may or may not deserve it? And and are we even the people who, who should offer that gift, right? Right, right. Or, or is it a selfish decision because I can live with myself if I offer forgiveness, but I would have a hard time with my conscience if I didn't. So again, it's, it's muddled and it's fascinating to me, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I can understand why too. It's, it's a, uh, it is something that they're, you know, it's, I think it's a very personal response that creates mm-hmm. the answer. And so uh, that's hence why people don't agree with each other. <laughs> exactly. But, but to your point, why not listen? You might learn something, right? Right, right. right. Yeah. So powerful. I, you know, we're getting close to finishing up and I got to make sure that I, I say this because, uh, um, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning a little bit. Um, who is your target audience? Because, uh, you know, this is, this read fine as, you know, an adult reading the, this book. And I said, who's your target audience? Um, my books are primarily written for women of a certain sage. And I say that because it can be age or older, someone who is willing to learn something at any age. Um, but what I'm finding with this particular book, I wrote it, and when I sent it to the publisher of Van Velzer Press, um, the editor was like, this is, a, this is kind of a YA book, but it's not. And I was like, yeah, I know. And so it's a Bildungsroman book, which is a book specifically um, for people who are willing to learn a lesson at any age. So there's an actual genre, but it's not like you can go into the bookstore and be like, I'd like the Bildungsroman section, please. <laughs> so because we need to categorize it, for good reason. It's categorized as a YA book, but I'm finding really that teenagers, early 20s, and then people over 50, men and women, which again, shocked me. I didn't think men would enjoy it as much as they do, but this is what I'm hearing from people who email. So um, I, I think that it's that that age range, like 22 and 13 to 22. I had, a, I had several 13 year olds read it. I, their parents approved. And then, cause there are some yucky scenes and then uh, people over 50 who I think are, have lived long enough that they're starting to ask questions about, well, why am I here? And what do I stand for? And things right, like that right. when you're not so involved in 
raising kids anymore because, you know, they're off on their own and you have a chance to look inward and think, what would I do? You know, I think a lot of people in the 22 to 50 range are still busy raising kids and do not want to read something that's going to require a lot of thought. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) That's not, that's not necessarily true, but often it's the case because I hear, oh, I love trashy. You know, I love to sit on the beach and I'm like, yeah, you don't want this book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as a note, I hadn't thought that it was YA until I read some of your reviews and I went, oh yeah, I guess it could be I I didn't write it that way. And my, my publisher was great. She, she changed some of the verbiage. Um, She younged it up. I put in quotations (laughs) to make it um, not so cerebral, I think. And Uh, in so doing, because the 15 year old protagonist is such a strong character. um, In fact, I think it became YA, but the woman, the picture on the cover is based on a picture of Antonia Gentry, who is in, um, Ginny and Georgia on Netflix um, because I loved the show and I loved her character. And so when I was thinking about when I wrote Ebony, people have asked me, by the way, you know, I'm a 55 year old white woman writing a 15 year old biracial character. Who am I to be doing that? And my answer is this, this, every character that I have written has come to me almost fully formed in my head. So There was never any question in my mind that Ebony was biracial. No question. Devil's Grace, two books ago, um, someone asked me if I would consider writing the main character as a person of color, and my immediate answer was no. And they said, why? And I said, because that's not how she came to me. So um, I did have some people of color read this book to make sure I was being as culturally sensitive as I can um, so I hope I, I did okay. I have not heard otherwise, but I'm always open to comments. Gotcha. So. Well, well, cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's, and just like I said, though, it's for anyone who reads, I didn't even think about it being a YA book until, uh, um, hmm. I read some of the reviews and I went, Oh yeah, I guess you could. Say this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, cool. Um, you know, just a note, you have some incredible reviews and I gotta, I'm going to read one. Here on a on Amazon, a review titled "Heartwarming and Insightful" said this: "This is a lovely story of friendships, strong women coming to one's own, and lessons learned. I love the intergenerational relationship between the two main characters and how they both benefited from their shared stories. The author brings them to life in a way that keeps you rooting for them despite their imperfections. Uh, there are unexpected twists, and present-day social issues are addressed in a thoughtful, intelligent way. Love this book and highly recommend it to teens as well as adults. This is." Yeah, this this is cool. I mean, when you started writing, did you ever think about getting reviews like this? No, I I didn't think about getting reviews at all. Now, <laughs> every once in a while, I check like once every two weeks to see if there are new reviews. And, um, you know, writers have different opinions on that. But I do like to check because I do like to hear it. There's some people that have said to me, you know, I thought your other books were better. Uh, I wanted to hear more about the old woman. And it's interesting because, as I said, uh, this story became about Ebony because Madam had requ- retracted her permission to write about her. So right, right. It, this is a different book than my other ones. Um, so it just depends on, on what you like. But yeah, I'm very pleased and grateful that there are some good reviews um, and that people are being very kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of a relief. Nice. I, it, yeah. it, just a note, I, I, you know, I, I listen and read a lot of stuff and I listen to podcasts and read uh, all kinds of books. And, and it's just funny because I've heard a lot of authors say things like, uh, yeah, I don't look at my reviews because, uh, <laughs> because especially if it's a one star, because then there's someone who probably shouldn't have been reading my book in the first place. <laughs> mm, and, yeah. Uh, that and, is often true. Yeah. And so yep. I thought that was interesting. Um, but, uh, very cool. And kudos on the reviews because they're all over the place in different, in different, uh, areas. What I mean is, is uh, like in Amazon and good reviews and, and stuff like this. And I think Thanks. that's, that's cool too. So, uh, thank uh, you. Um, kudos to you. That's very cool. Um, so, all right. So we're tying this all up and bringing it to an end and, uh, um, enjoyed your book, Beth, but if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you, learn more, where would you send them? My website is the best way to get in touch with me. So elizabethsplainauthor.com, all one word. 
And um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and um, um, all of the social media channels. But uh, that's probably, obviously, Facebook. That's the best way to get in touch with me. And I do love to hear from readers. Like I said, I will have a conversation with you if you love the book and if you didn't love the book. I want to understand why. So um, I love to chat with people. And I just drove last weekend, I drove four and a half hours one way to to attend a book club because they were reading my last book, Swan Song. So you know, I'll travel because I love to chat with people and get the word out. Um, so people can follow me that way. Yeah. And if they want to be added to my email list, there's no spam. And I send out one email a year. I would love to get Swan Song and um, Steel Butterflies into a school c- curriculum. One woman said to me, she's a former teacher, and she said, I feel like Steel Butterflies should be in a school curriculum because it deals with racism, ageism, um, all the isms that we, (laughs) that we need to tackle these days and that it's accessible to teenagers. So that would be really cool. But, um, I'm doing, um, I'm doing a meet and greet at Brown university bookstore over parents weekend actually in Providence. So that's going to be pretty fun too, because I get to interact with people who hopefully will be reading the book. So nice. We'll have fun with that. That's very cool. Uh, Beth, thanks so much for talking with me. I love historical fiction, especially when it's based upon real events and situations and people. Your characters deal with real issues from past and from today. Steel Butterflies is an excellent read, and there are lessons to be learned. Wishing you success in everything you do. Thank you, my friend. It was great to see you. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.